You're listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. Well, listen, if we have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at DCC, and I have the honor and privilege to bring God's word today. And so I'm gonna be preaching a standalone message called Peace by Peace. And today we're gonna be in Mark chapter 10, so if you wanna get there before we all get there, you can go ahead and turn in your Bible or go ahead and get your app ready for that. Mark chapter 10, and we're gonna be starting in verse 17. And I wanna go ahead and tell you that the man that we're going to see that is kind of the focal point of the story that we're gonna read from our text today, his name is not mentioned in the Bible. And so we have some context clues as to a little bit more about this man that I think can kind of fill in some gaps before we read this story. And so this story that we're gonna read is actually included in all three of what is known as the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This story is included in all of those gospels, which when stories like that are repeated, that is usually a pretty clear indication that there is something that God wants to get through to us. And so as we piece together these three different narratives of this one story, we find a few things about this man we're gonna read about here in just a moment. We find out that he is a young man and, and with context clues, that tells us he could be anywhere from the age of 24 to 40 years old, which is incredibly young, amen? Uh, so he's a young man. He is a ruler, and so he is a leader. There's a really good chance uh, that there is uh, some spiritual implication to this as far as he is probably a leader in the local synagogue, and so he's a, a church leader. He is most likely a spiritual leader. And then on top of all of that, he is, as the Bible calls him, a man of great Wealth, And so with all of that, we have come to know this man as the rich young ruler. And so we're going to talk about the story of the rich young ruler today, but I want to go ahead and just throw a disclaimer on this whole thing before anybody wiggles in your seat anymore because I just said wealthy and rich young ruler, and so we're talking about money. This sermon is not about money. Okay, so everybody just, actually, you know what, I'll be honest, maybe it is about money. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how God takes this. We'll see where God prompts us and how God convicts our hearts. But really, this is about something so much deeper. And so let's get into our text today, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. And as he, the he right here is Jesus, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that your word is alive, that it speaks to us. And so Father, today, as we Open our hearts and our minds and our ears and our eyes to your word. I pray that you would bring conviction to those places in our heart that we may be trying to keep hidden from you and maybe we don't even realize that we are hiding from ourselves. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in everything that is done. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I am absolutely convinced that right now there are 
two groups of people that are here and watching online and at our Trenton campus. There are two groups, and we're gonna categorize those groups of people, and you're gonna self-identify here in just a moment, but in order to do that, I wanna kind of put your mind in a certain situation. So I want you to, if you will with me, give me the, uh, the latitude to allow your mind to go on a little bit of a journey, and just imagine for just a moment that you are at a function where everyone brings food to add to a collective table and everybody is gonna go one at a time to go through and pick the food at this table. Many different situations call for this, many different names for this. I didn't know until I moved to North Florida that in the church world, this was called dinner on the grounds. I'd never heard of that before in my life. The first, anybody heard that, that term before? Okay, we got a, a lot of hands, all right, so sorry, I was, I was, I'm not from here. So I heard that and I was like, why are we eating our dinner on the ground? I don't, that's all, I could not get past it, right? And so we called it growing up in our church, we called it covered dish. Here at DCC, if you go to section community parties, we call it potluck parties, but you see this at cookouts, you see this at barbecues, especially at Thanksgiving, where there's a lot of different type of foods. So just imagine with me that you're at one of these functions right now, and you walk up to the edge of the serving buffet line, and you have two options for what plate you are going to use to eat off of that day. And I come bearing illustrations. And so you have one of these two plates to choose from. I don't know if you can see in the back, hopefully you can see through the cameras, these are very, very different and a lot of strong opinions attached to each and every single one of these plates. But you come up to the table and you have either choice A or choice B. I need to know right now in the room how many of you are going with choice B? Raise your hands. At our Trenton campus, raise your hands, let me know. All right, we got a lot of hands going up, all right? I'm not even gonna ask about the other one, right? I'm just not, I'm not gonna start a feud, I'm not gonna start a war, but you know who you are, because I are one of you, right? <laughs> but you compartment people, compartment plate people, rather, I, I I, I understand, I guess, I kind of understand the logic behind what you're doing, but to me, like, if it all goes together, it's all good, right? And, and, and if you're a compartment plate person, you don't like your food touching, then I'm gonna tell you what people have probably told you your whole life and probably you heard growing up. What is it gonna be? It all goes to the same place. What does it really matter? And on Thanksgiving, if I can get a bite of every single side dish and my main course in one bite, I, that's as close to heaven as I think we're getting here. I'm just telling you, I love it. I love it when the flavors mingle, right? They accentuate each other. For some of you, this is your nightmare, and you're like, please get, you were hungry before this thinking about a potluck, and now you're like, please get me out of here, right? But for you compartment plate people, I want you to know I get it. I understand the concept. I understand that for some of you, the thought of your food touching is revolting to you. For some of you, you're the juices that flow from one item to the next is just gross to you. And maybe for you, it's the texture thing. Like the textures cannot intermingle, right? We can't have mac and cheese and cornbread touching, although that is a majestic miracle. <laughs> but there is something to be said about 
compartments. There's something to be said about compartmentalization when we separate things. And although we started here with this plate, it doesn't just stop there because there are other places in our life where compartmentalization is very, very helpful and very, very useful. On your job, as you have tasks to accomplish, if you can compartmentalize and and, and check those boxes off one at a time, that can be really helpful for your productivity. If you're at home cleaning and organizing the garage or cleaning the house or doing the yard work, if you can compartmentalize all the different things that you have to do, it makes it easier to control and manage all of those little compartments than just taking on everything all at once. And all of my Enneagram type ones said amen. Nobody took the Enneagram or we don't have any ones. All right, good talk. That was just for you, PR. PR loves the Enneagram. It is his favorite. But it can be helpful to compartmentalize some things in our lives. But let me tell you that we have a tendency as Christians to also take the same compartmentalized mindset into how we relate and into our relationship with God. You see, I think that we believe a lot of times that we can keep our lives segmented and separated and pick and choose which parts we wanna surrender to God and then also which pieces we wanna hang on to and we wanna keep control of. And I think as we see this story from our text in Mark chapter 10, I think that this is where we find this man that we know as the rich young ruler. And so if we could go back to our text, this this is kind of cluing us in at the beginning of verse 17 that Jesus is about to leave this town where he currently is and continue on as he's traveling. At this point in Jesus's earthly ministry, everywhere that he goes, he is healing people, he's teaching, people are being delivered. And so he is at this point, his fame is probably at somewhat of a fever pitch. People know about Jesus at this point. And so he's traveling town to town, teaching and preaching and healing, and he's about to leave this town that he's in right now and head actually toward Jerusalem, which is significant in the life and the ministry of Jesus, because when he heads to Jerusalem, that is where he is going, and he understands and knows full well what's going to happen in Jerusalem, that that is where he is going to face crucifixion. And so this is him leaving this town, and as he's on his way out of this town, you have to picture this, this young, influential church leader who has a lot of wealth comes running to him, the scripture says. And so he runs down Jesus as he's on his way out of town. Maybe he's on the outskirts. Maybe he's on a small road heading out of town and into Jerusalem, but he runs Jesus down. And it says that he kneels before Jesus. This young man, as wealthy as he is and his status in leadership, especially if he is a church leader, means that he would have been wearing some things that were quite expensive, immaculate robes that he would wear to signify his importance, but then also to signify his wealth as well. And so this very, very important, wealthy person runs and falls on his knees in front of Jesus. You see, a lot of times when religious leaders of that time come to Jesus and ask him a question, it is not a sincere question. The question is not because they really want to know the answer. The question is phrased and posed in a way that they wanna catch Jesus in a lie. Or they wanna catch Jesus in a moment where he doesn't know the answer to something and then therefore discredit him. But that is not what we see in this scene at all. In fact, this young man comes with a ton of humility and he falls to Jesus's feet. This is no stunt. 
This is not posturing. This is not, I hope I can catch Jesus in a, in a, a, a moment of hesitation so that I can discredit him. No, no, this is him coming with an earnest heart and a sincere question. And the question that he asks when he gets Jesus' attention while he's on his knees staring at the Savior is he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? conversation starts and Jesus begins to tell him some of the commandments, remind him, and he even says, of course you know the commandments. He knew that this young man knew all of these commandments, and here are the ones that he mentions. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And the response that the young man gives Jesus is all of these I have kept since my youth. Since I was a kid, since I was young, I have said yes to all of these things. I have lived these things out. That's not a surprise. Most of the religious leaders of that time, they prided themselves on following all of the rules. And so this doesn't shock Jesus. It doesn't catch anybody off guard. But what this does is it paints a really good picture of who this person is and how he lives his life. He is a very moral person. We would say it like this. He is a good man. He was young. He was successful, he was wealthy, he was morally upstanding, and he was humble. This is the kind of man that you want your daughter to marry right here, right? And when my daughter is 40, I want her to marry a man just like, just kidding, 38. He was a good man. He was living a good life, but in his question and his pursuit of Jesus in the moment, there is an acknowledgement that something in his life was missing. There were, there were a lot of things that he had figured out. He was a good man and a good person, but something was missing. And because of all the things that he was getting right, he was blinded to the thing that he was getting wrong. And in Jesus's response to the question that is asked, it exposes the truth about this rich young ruler, this young, influential, wealthy man's heart. And I want to go back to our text in Mark chapter 10 and read verse 21 at Jesus's reply to the question. It says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. There are two things that I feel like we need to establish in this one verse before we go any further and examine what God might be wanting to show us in our hearts today. And the first is this, is that when Jesus looks at this man, how does he respond? Does he respond out of anger? Does he respond out of frustration? Does he respond out of being annoyed that he doesn't get it, that he, there's, this, there's this impediment, there's something in the way, this wealth is getting in the way of this relationship with Jesus? No, he doesn't respond out of any of those ways. What he responds out of is love. It says when he looked at the man, he loved him. You see, Jesus looks at him and he loves him so much that he is not willing to allow this conversation to go on without confronting this man with the truth of the situation. Jesus loves him so much that he's not willing to let this guy get up off of his knees and go back to his regular life without having the confrontational moment of being able to say yes to a big ask from Jesus so that he can be discipled by the Savior because Jesus knows what this man needs. And he loves him so much that he's willing to call him out on this, to point at the one thing that he is holding back. 
You see, so many times in our lives, as, as we experience conviction, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, sometimes we have a tendency to turn that in our minds and say, well, God just doesn't want me to have any fun, right? Like all these, all, these to do, all these things I'm not supposed to do, all these places I'm not supposed to go, all these things I'm supposed to do. Well, it, you know, God is just, it's, it's just oppressive and like all these things that I've got to do and God convicts me of that and I got to give that and it's just, it's just so, no, 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 listen. God never convicts us because he wants to make us miserable. That is not the goal. That is not the will of God. The will of God for us is freedom. And so when he convicts us of something and points to something in our life that is not right, that he is empowering us the opportunity to say yes to him and change, it is because he loves us so much that he finds us where we are, but he loves us so much that he doesn't wanna leave us there. And so this response of Jesus is out of love. Don't read this any other way. This is out of love. But then secondly, from this one verse, I think it's important for us to understand and acknowledge that God is not anti-wealth. God is not anti-money. You see all throughout the gospels, when Jesus calls people to follow him, we don't see this requirement placed on every individual that he asks to come and follow him. We don't. It's not a prerequisite to be a disciple of Jesus Christ to be broke and destitute. That is not what is happening here. That is not a prerequisite to follow Christ. But for this man specifically, his wealth was a roadblock to being a disciple. His wealth was getting in the way. It was a problem. You see, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, this man, although he was, had a lot of things going for him, he didn't have a wealth issue. There was a heart issue there. That is what Jesus is getting to. That is the core of Jesus's uh, statement to him. The answer to that question is dealing with his heart. And so the rich young ruler comes to Jesus knowing that there's something missing. You don't ask a question like, how do I inherit eternal life if you, fig if you thought that you had it all figured out? And so he realizes, he admits, I, there's something that is missing, but he couldn't diagnose it. All this man knows is that his life is incomplete. He just knows that there is something missing. And Jesus' answer shows that the part of his life that is missing is actually the part that he won't let go of. It's the part that he's holding on so tightly to. You see, he was separating what he was willing to surrender. And so the rich young ruler believed what a lot of us believe, that he could somehow segment his life, compartmentalize his life, break his life up into small, manageable pieces and only give to God, only hand to Jesus that which is comfortable and acceptable in, in his idea to hand over to Jesus. But Jesus in his answer is telling him, it is impossible to be a true follower of Jesus. It is impossible to be a disciple of Jesus without surrendering our whole entire lives to him, our whole entire person, our whole entire soul to him. And, and it's, it's a difficult truth for us to reconcile because I realize that what that means is that it is going to cost us something to follow Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German preacher, pastor, author, theologian, in 1937 wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. If anybody in the history of Christianity is, is qualified to write a book called The Cost of Discipleship, 
It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who refused to back down of his stance and his beliefs in the face of the Nazi party in Germany in the 30s and the 40s and ended up executed in a concentration camp because of his strong beliefs and strong convictions in preaching the gospel. And so he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And, and the idea, the, the, the prominent idea that comes through is that being a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus, is always going to cost us something. In the words of Billy Graham, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything. It costs us something. It costs us something to be a true disciple of Jesus. But if I could pose the question like this, what will it cost us if we choose not to? What will it cost us if we choose not to give everything to follow after Jesus? It requires us to give our full allegiance, our full trust to him with all of our lives. And Jesus knows that for this man to experience true freedom and real abundant life, he's gotta trust Jesus enough to surrender it all. And so Jesus tells him, sell everything. Everything that you've got, go ahead and sell it, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. But the young man's response is absolutely heartbreaking. It says that he goes away sorrowful. Why? Because he has many possessions, because he is that wealthy, and he's not willing to give that up to be discipled by Jesus. You see, Jesus' words upset the rich young ruler but they don't just upset the rich young ruler. They also upset us as well. Because the story of the rich young ruler exposes a raw nerve in us that causes a reaction. And here's why. It's because it exposes in us those things that we're not readily willing to surrender in our own personal pursuit of discipleship of Jesus. There are things that we hold on to, things that it might not be money, it might not be money for you, but, but there are things that we hold on to that we have separated our life into segments, into pieces, and there are some things we're willing to give to God easily, but then there are some things that we hold on for dear life. And if we're honest with ourselves today, I believe that there are several reasons why we are convincing ourselves not to fully and truly surrender every small little piece and part of our lives and our hearts to Christ. And the first one that I see is, I think pride plays a huge part in this. I know better than God. We would never say that out loud, right? We wouldn't. We would never say that with our words, but we declare it with our lifestyle often. Is that we control this part of our life because, well, I feel like I probably have some inside knowledge that God doesn't have. Think about your job, your career, where you work. You might know your company. And maybe you've said these words even. Man, I know this company. I know this line of work. I know this business. I know the career path. I know the one year, the five year, the 10 year plan. I know all of this. And so God, I got this. I don't, I don't need to surrender that part to God because I've got that part figured out and I know where I'm going. I know where I'm on track to be. And so instead of offering that to God and saying, God, I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me. I want you to speak to me. I want you to open the doors and I want you to close the doors. Instead of surrendering that, we say, no, 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 God, I'm okay. I'm going to keep that peace. You can have all these other things here. Here's my family. You can have that. You, you, can, you, can, have, uh, you can have this, you can have that, but I'm going I'm to hold on to that one piece for right now because I feel like I know where I'm headed. We do this with our time often. Every July here at DCC, is a month of Sabbath. 
We teach and we preach, and this has been happening for the the life of this church that we talk about Sabbath. We talk about the biblical godly principle of giving God that one day a week for rest, that we can work six, but we rest one. And with our lifestyle, we have a, a, a tendency to say, no, 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 God, I got this, I got this figured out. I'm gonna do the seven day thing because I've got all of this margin in other places in my life. I'm a high producer, I'm okay with it, I don't get tired. You know, I'm just, I'm gonna push through and I'm gonna work because I know all the things that need to get done. God, you have no idea what my to-do list looks like. You have no idea, God, all the irons that I've got in the fire and all of the things that I've gotta take my kids to and all of the things at the house and all of the things at work. I can't afford, God, I got this, I know my schedule. I know my calendar better than you know my calendar, God. And so I'm gonna take this day and try to get ahead and try to accomplish it. The whole time we're ignoring the fact that God can do more with that one day that we give him than with six working our fingers to the bone. Or maybe we do this, maybe, maybe for some of us in the room, maybe for some of you in the room, there, there is, when we talk about the rich young ruler, and I said this isn't a sermon about money, but it might be about money. Maybe for you, that is the the impediment. Maybe for you, that is the roadblock. It's something that you're holding on to. It's a piece of your life, your budget, your line items, your income, your investment portfolio. It's something that you're holding on tight to because we feel like, well, I know better than God does in this one area. And maybe you're saying, well, hey, Andrew, I am not wealthy. I got news for you. We live in the United States of America. We are all wealthy. In the grand scale of the world, we are all wealthy. Wealthy. You don't have to have like piles of money and Scrooge McDuck swimming it and all that stuff to, to be wealthy. But maybe it's money, maybe it's your mindset about money that you're holding back. Well, God, I, I, can't, I can't give regularly. I, I can't tithe because I, got, I know the bills. I see it every month and I, I don't, I'm not gonna have enough to make ends meet if I give that. Or God, I can't, I can't give that, that to that need right now. I can't give to that, I can't be generous in that way right now because after all, I, I, I've got these things that I'm saving up for and I've, I've got a, you know, I've been watching Dave Ramsey and I gotta pay off all the debt before, you know, all that stuff. Dave will tell you to tithe, so. But I, we, we feel like we have it figured out because we know all of the things that are supposed to happen with our money, so we, we hold on to that and we won't give that to God. We hold that peace so tightly. You see, our pride keeps us from putting our whole lives, all of it, not compartmentalized, not broken up into little pieces, but our whole lives in the hands of God. We only hand him the pieces that we want to or at least the ones that we think he might know better than us. And we completely ignore and forget the fact of who we're handing our lives to. We completely ignore the fact that we are handing our lives to the Jesus who is handed five loaves of bread and two fish. And when they are in his hands, that he blesses them and then they multiply. That's the Jesus that we are giving our lives to. That's the God that we are serving. And when we put those things that we wanna hold back because of our pride, we think we know better, when we put those things in his hands, watch him bless it and watch him multiply it and watch him do things with your time when you observe Sabbath that you would be mind blown to see. Watch him do things with your finances when you trust him with your finances that you could never accomplish on your own. Watch your career path take off in ways and avenues in companies and doors that open that you had no idea even existed, but it can't happen until we put that in his hands. 
See, Ephesians 3.20, and Marlene quoted this at the end of that worship song, says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all than we can ask or think, when we put our whole lives in the hands of God, it will blow our minds what God can do through us and in us if we just hand that over. So our pride gets in the way, but it's not just pride because I believe that, that we have fear that is operating in our lives. Fear that's operating in our lives of what will happen if we surrender that part of our life to God. And will God really be faithful? So maybe it's something about the time, you're waiting on God's timing, but you're getting impatient. You're waiting on God's timing for the direction. You're waiting for the next step. You're waiting for the next answer. You're waiting for that relationship. You're wait, whatever it is, and, and you're, you're growing tired of waiting, and you're saying, God, I'm trying to give it to you, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking it back because I'm tired of your timing. You're not working fast enough. And I'm afraid that if I keep waiting, I'm gonna miss out on something great for my life. And so we, we take that back. You know, last month during our consecrate services, we had special prayer for something that has been on Pastor Rocky's heart for the last couple of years now, and that is praying for our prodigals. Those, those people that we love that are far from God, praying for them and believing and having faith that they are going to come back home. And we prayed a special prayer that night at Consecrate as we've been praying for the last couple of years, but, but we had everybody put, if you were here, you put a list of names on a piece of paper, our top five people that we wanna see come to Christ. And listen, we are already getting reports that people are saying yes to Jesus that are on those lists. God is working, God is moving, amen. Give him praise for that, amen. But maybe, just maybe, there's some fear in your heart that one of those names that you wrote down, that the fear is if you stop worrying and being anxious about that person coming back to Christ, that you're somehow gonna fail them because then you're gonna let them down and then maybe God won't pay attention if you're not worrying about them all the time and you're not stressed out about that all the time when God is asking, hey, put them in my hands. Give them to me. Don't be afraid of that. He's got it. Or maybe... For some of you, there is unforgiveness that is just deeply rooted in your heart. And the fear for you is that if you truly give that up to God, is he really gonna be able to heal the heart? Is he, re is he really gonna do it? Because when I hold on to it, it's a little bit of a safety blanket, right? It's a little bit of a, okay, at least I know the pain I'm dealing with. When I give that to God, oof, that's an unknown. And I don't, is God gonna heal me? Is God gonna restore that part of myself that was lost, that was broken, that was damaged? And I think for a lot of us, the, the fear makes us question, not if, not if God can, but I find that most of the time when we're fearful and doubt enters our minds, it's not about if he can, it's about if he will. Like we, a lot of us believe that God can do anything. We've seen God do amazing things. The doubt is not, oh, I, I, don't, I don't know if he can, it's I don't know if he will. And in Matthew chapter eight, Jesus has this encounter with a man with leprosy, a disease that is incurable at the time. And it says in Matthew chapter eight and verse two, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And I think this is, an enunciation of what we often think about is that God, I know you can, but I don't know if you will. He says, God, I, Jesus, I know you can do it, but will you do it? And then the response of Jesus in verse three, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
And so if you're holding on to pieces of your heart, pieces of your life because you're afraid that God is not gonna come through for you, the word of Jesus is I will. That is his will, is that yes, he wants to heal you. Yes, he wants to provide for you. Yes, his will is absolutely for your good and for his glory. And so yes, he absolutely will. And so pride gets in the way, fear gets in the way. But I think that there's something that is even maybe below the surface of those things, some, some of the, the, the pain that we are feeling and some of the, the almost requirement that we have in our minds and hearts to hold on to some things so closely is the shame that is associated with those pieces and parts of our lives. That thing that we're not proud of, that part of our past, that decision that we messed up completely, that addiction, that loss, that heartbreak, there's, there's some shame that we are carrying with us. And, and the question in our minds is not, I'm not gonna give that to God because I don't think he can handle it. The question is really, I'm not gonna give that to God because I, I don't know how he's gonna see me. I don't wanna hand that to him because I don't want him to see that part of me. And to be honest with you, what we get really good at is kind of dissociating and, and, and just repressing and shoving it down to where we even ignore it and kind of choose to forget that that part of our story is there, choose to forget that story, that part of our lives is even real. So we're so shameful of that that we try and hide that peace from God. It's not about pride, it's not about fear, it's really about shame. And it reminds me of the creation narrative, the Adam and Eve, when they bring sin into this world and they realize what they've done and they go and they try and hide from their creator in the middle of his creation. That sounds crazy. All of us looking at that at 30,000 feet are like, that was a dumb decision. Obviously, God's gonna find you, but don't we do the same thing? We try and hide those things from God saying, well, if I just, if I just hide that piece of myself, then God won't, God won't judge me for it. God won't be angry. God won't be disappointed. No, God loves you. And God wants to heal those things. God wants to take our lives peace by peace. He wants to take our lives and build something when we expose that to the love of Christ, weave that together, build something beautiful that shines and shows his glory. A few years ago, I learned of this Japanese pottery technique called kintsugi. And kintsugi is uh, Japanese for golden joinery. And, and uh, what this is, is that Japanese artists will take a, a, a ceramic um, pot or a pottery, and if it's broken and in pieces, what they do is they take all of the pieces and together with a lacquer of gold, they repair the pottery. But they don't repair it in a way to where it completely hides all of the imperfections, where it completely hides all of the cracks. In fact, they let that gold show through. It is on purpose. It is very purposeful. That instead of trying to hide the mistakes, instead of trying to hide the imperfections, that it's actually accentuated. And what ends up happening is the value of these pieces shoot up exponentially. These pieces of pottery are more valuable after they are repaired by the skillful artist's hands than when they were brand new, shiny, and nothing at all was ever wrong with them. And so there is this value that is attached to them, but not just that. It is an ever-present reminder that the expert craftsman that used that gold filament to fill in all of those pieces, 
that the glory of that, that the fame of that points to that artist. That there's no mistake that it was broken, but that artist fixed it and made it beautiful and it is incredibly valuable now. You see that piece of ourself that we are holding back from God because of doubt, because of fear, because of shame. It's the exact thing that God wants us to just hand to him, just piece by piece. Whatever that is that we've been clutching to and we are possessive of, he wants us to give that to him so that he can make something masterfully that is beautiful, that reflects the glory of God. And I don't know about you, but when I get to this place in my life where I feel that conviction and I realize that God is asking me to give something to him that I am holding on tight to, it starts to get a little bit overwhelming. It starts to get a little bit big, like I, I, it's not possible. That is impossible, I can't, I, can't, I can't do that. But when you start to read through the rest of the, the story after our text ends with the rich young ruler walking away sorrowful, because he had great wealth, you realize that there is a conversation that continues to go on with Jesus and his disciples after that man walks away. And Jesus starts to teach them about how difficult it is for rich folks to really trust God. I'm boiling it down into Andrew. But it's, it's, it's hard for wealthy people to give their heart to Christ. And although, yes, Jesus is teaching about money in that moment, he's teaching about so much more because remember, it's really not about the money for this man, it's about the heart. And so what Jesus is essentially saying to us today is it is incredibly hard for us to trust God with everything if we are holding something back, if something is more important than he is. And so the the disciples look at him just wide-eyed and bewildered and be like, they, they literally say, well, then who can be saved? It's a legitimate question. If, if, if people that seem like they have it all together on the outside, they're having a hard time trusting Jesus, then who in the world can do this? And listen to Jesus's response to them in Mark chapter 10 and verse 27. He says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. Not with God, for all things are possible with God. You see, with God, that last piece that you are holding on when you hand it to him, he will do things that you never imagined that he could because you are not able to do that yourself, but with God, all things are possible. He wants to take those things. As we surrender those things to him, one by one, he wants to take those things and make something beautiful for his glory. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.